0: Welcome to the very first episode of Unscriptured, a podcast focusing on early Christianity. Each week we'll have a conversation between a so-called expert, myself, and someone who is interested in this material but hasn't had the opportunity yet to take that deep dive into the material. In fact, some of my guests will have almost no actual experience with Christianity, but they bring really interesting questions to the table. Uh, Our goal is to make complicated information accessible. This is information that I've acquired during extensive graduate work, including my Ph.D. work. Uh, And it's something I've enjoyed immensely is making this information accessible, as I've done for many years at UCLA and now working with high school students. This week, I'm joined by uh, a good friend of mine and colleague, Casey. He's probably the most inquisitive person I know. He is a voracious reader. He's a very intelligent man. And I think you're going to hear in this episode that he has very insightful and interesting questions. He has almost no background with Christianity. In fact, he told me that uh, before our interactions, he it wasn't even really something that had interested him all that much. But in the last couple of years, it's really uh, become something that he's highly interested in. His own personal religious background is... He is uh, culturally Jewish, but hasn't spent a lot of time in that tradition as well, really learning and interacting with the texts. This week, we're going to be starting at what most would label the beginning of Christianity, that is Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, We'll be exploring this topic by trying to figure out, by looking at the different biographies posited by many scholars and how they prioritize the data in their work, and trying to wrestle with that and figure out what do we do with these many different portraits or biographies that are given to us so with that out of the way let's get on with the first episode of unscriptured i'm joined this week by my very first guest i'm excited to have him on he's my colleague it's casey how are you doing casey
1: i'm doing well thanks for having me kevin
0: How's this uh, self-isolation treating you? It seems like it would treat you better than anyone I know.
1: It's going fairly well for my reading pursuits. And for some reason, as soon as the quarantine hit, I was reading or have been reading a lot about the late medieval era. So it feels oddly fitting.
0: (laughs) Very nice. Very nice. I have a very different perspective Uh, surrounded by my children at all moments. We are still getting along well, but uh, we'll see what three months brings. Hopefully we will still like each other by the end of this.
1: Yeah, I think we're all in the same boat.
0: Uh, I'm hopeful we will. All right, well, today, Casey, I wanted to jump in with what many people would call the beginnings of Christianity. I I think we will have another episode where we go before Jesus. But I want to start here. I want to ask you this question. Uh, Many people say his name is Jesus Christ. I call him Jesus of Nazareth. What is the Christ thing? Do you, is that his last name?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I, I guess that I would say I think it is, although I don't really think about it as a last name. I think about it as an identifier or a marker. So Jesus Christ together feels like it's conveying something different than a first or last name.
0: Interesting. So it, it seems like some way to demarc him, but not necessarily a last name, but for some reason it kind of sounds like it because we've put them together forever, Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, It's. it doesn't – I don't associate family when I think about Jesus Christ. I almost mm. associate the name with an image of him.
0: So would it you feels- say his dad is – joseph christ the carpenter
1: right i don't even think about that when i hear jesus christ i think about him as almost a self-contained and entity
0: Mm, yeah i think that's a good point um it's interesting for me when i talk to students about this i say i always ask them what's jesus's last name and like in mass in unison they all yell out christ uh but you're right christ is actually not his last name uh, it's it's more of a designation in meaning Messiah, and it's just over mm. time that designation Messiah has ended up being so connected to him that I think most people just naturally assume that it is his last name. But no, you're right. His his father's name was not Joseph Christ the Carpenter. We don't know his last name. It's one of the really fascinating things about Jesus. Is there there we have all of this information about him, but what we actually know about him is not as much as you would think and often in conflict. All right. Uh, so i want to ask you the, this other question, uh, Casey. I think one of the big places to start is with his religion. When you think of Jesus, what religion do you associate with him? So I
1: think about this in two ways. One, I think of Christianity and I think that's the real one I associate with him, real in quotation marks, we could say. And then I know intellectually that he starts out, or I believe he starts out um, from Judaism, but that never carries the same sort of weight as Christianity, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, actually. it's It's one of the most interesting elements of his story to me is that like, if you talk to just a random person on the street and you say, what religion is Jesus? They're probably without thinking about it carefully, just going to say Christian, right? Yeah. But he is maybe the foundational figure that Christianity is built upon, but you're (laughs) definitely right. His actual religion is Judaism. If you read the text, he is a Jew living in a Judea, talking to other Judeans, participating in Jewish festivals like Passover, uh, interacting with Jewish texts. He is 100% a Judean working within Judaism. And then as the movement continues and uh, people like Paul of Tarsus especially start spreading this message, that's where we see some sort of splintering happening with these two movements. But I think it's important to note from the beginning that Jesus really is... Uh, embedded in the Jewish tradition,
1: is it fair to say, based on that, that he would not have been sort of self-aware as Christian? That wouldn't make sense to him.
0: Yes, I think he would be. I think that would would be something that wouldn't make sense to him at all, because he is considering himself as somebody as working within the Jewish, Jewish tradition. A lot of the times, we'll see reformers of traditions as sort of a part of that tradition. And as they as time continues, some splinter might happen and then the followers now break off into their own tradition. But in first century Judea, there's a lot of turmoil and chaos happening and Jesus is not the only one who's sort of questioning what we're going to do, how we're going to approach this, how we're going to fix this relationship with God and get these Romans out of here. He's just one of many people who are really wrestling with this, uh, and it just happens to be that his message gets uh, really carried on by other people and eventually becomes its own religion.
1: Are there other carriers of the message of his peers, we could say? Um, Do we have records of of the other people and other sort of branches working within Judaism? Um, Do we have the sort of counterfactual or alternative history Um, that might have happened if they became famous and not uh, Jesus of Nazareth?
0: Um, Yeah, what's fascinating about this is we have all kinds of stuff. We have my favorite historian, Josephus. We'll have to do a whole show on Josephus later. He's a fascinating guy. But he writes about these different groups of Judeans, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, who appear quite a bit in the New Testament as the rivals of Jesus and then the Essenes, who we often associate um, one of those groups with the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. So, mm. um, you know, that group especially, we have tons of material from them. And they had a very different take on what was going on than Jesus. Uh, and again, that's a whole other episode. But they very much thought that they could isolate themselves as the select group and really be dedicated to God and God would eventually come in and carry them through to victory over the Romans without them having to actually battle themselves. They'd be able to blow trumpets and hold shields and these kind of things. And God would channel victory. So it's a very different approach than Jesus, but it's really interesting that we do have a whole bunch of evidence for all of these different approaches to what should we do with Judaism in this period.
1: So it sounds from what you're saying, like Jesus would have seen himself as a, a reformer of Judaism, that his goal was to work within that tradition and affect some sort of, I don't know, renaissance? Is that a, a, a fair way of putting it?
0: Um, yeah, I would, I would, I would definitely know? agree with Jesus as a reformer. Um, I, Although I would hesitate, just just how we often think of reformer, I'm not sure even that he had in mind like specific reforms or anything. It was more of just he had a different approach to sort of what was happening on the ground. And this is something we're going to have to talk about is what did Jesus even say and what was his message? But depending on what his message was goes, you know, from very much like trying to change things quite a bit to really not trying to change things much at all, um, sort of depending on which passages we're going to lean on more heavily Interesting, right. and that transitions perfectly into this question for you, Casey, when you think of Jesus, if you just had one phrase to talk about, like, what was Jesus and his message? What would be the phrase that you would use just from, you know, whatever it is that whether it's social media, whether it's other Christians, you know, whether it's documents you've read, what is the phrase you would use?
1: So when I hear Jesus I think about almost like a magic superhero god.
0: <laughs> okay. Interesting.
1: What, what do you people, mean by that? Like
0: what are the what are the data points you latch on to for that sure. kind of description?
1: The way people talk about him. And I'm not basing this on scripture just on discussions that people might have about Jesus. He seems like a figure of this superhuman power. He seems like a God. He seems to be a warrior for what's right and righteous. Mm. And I get the sense that, that two people of faith, it's almost the way that, modern secular movie viewers are seeing the Avengers or something. People who are powerful confronting evil. Uh, and there is this sort of magical or totemic quality to him. Interesting.
0: Um, would you say you lean on him as a miracle worker for that as, as well? Or is it just kind of like what he brings to Christianity is kind of everything?
1: He, it seems to be a little bit of both. The miracle worker aspect, I guess, testifies to his power. But when people talk about him, I get the sense that they're not thinking about the real Jesus, which is why it's interesting that there seem to be these recurrent sort of book trends on who was the real Jesus, because he seems to be a figure of extra human capacity. I um understand. Uh, not rooted in the actual person, but something who's greater than. Um.
0: Right. So it's not just, say, like the biblical passages attributed to Jesus, but it's more of like the whole history of everything and his impact in addition to what he did on this earth.
1: Yeah. He seems to carry or convey godlike qualities, which yeah. I, I realize might not be accurate to the text or the tradition, but that's the sort of sensibility i get when people refer to him
0: yeah and i think if you read and really lean on certain aspects of the text and especially on the impact over time that's a really reasonable uh description it's quite the opposite of the description that if someone gives me one phrase that i come up with i usually lean on something like he's one who reached out to the poor to outcasts and the downtrodden, and lifted them up and included them in something that that they would have previously been excluded from. And is that coming
1: from scripture?
0: Is that a sort of
1: textual approach? Is that a historical approach? Where do you get that
0: perspective from? That is from the text, but like we're going to talk about in a bit here, there are there's so much different information that I think a lot of when people read these different biographies essentially of Jesus or portraits of Jesus, you are going to sort of lean on whatever resonates most with you. And and the way it often works is your training is going to influence that. So the professor I worked with, that was what he thought was the correct phrase of Jesus. And when I started working with him, I sort of had some pushback on that and I was leaning in other directions. And then by the end I was like, yeah, that, that does seem right to me, which is probably because that's what I was interacting with a lot. Therefore that resonated more with me. And I think that's one of the big problems with trying to determine who really was Jesus or, or, what is the the most accurate biography of him? I think there's a lot of scholars' personal training or thoughts um, really embedded in how they see this figure.
1: So is Jesus often a reflection as much of our own perspective as it is the true Jesus? I mean, is it are there scholars who feel like there's a consensus Jesus, or is he really a figure uh, that? serves as kind of a mirror for a lot of different scholarly strands.
0: Yeah, a lot of the time he really does serve as a mirror of scholarly strands and the period in which people are studying him, right? So it's like if you are someone who really did a lot of your work during the you know late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. with the war, Vietnam War going on and pacifism really being bandied about, you might really lean on passages about like, turn the other cheek and if a roman soldier asked you to carry his pack you should offer to carry it even farther um if someone asks you or demands that they give you your coat you should give them your shirt also um and then different people who have looked at him from other periods of history focus on different elements and and so yeah i think it's it's really fascinating that that comes into play so much
1: and is there a split between A scholarly approach, broadly speaking, and a more, let's say, uh, theological approach? I mean, is there a difference between what someone in in an academic study of Jesus would see
0: than someone who's leading their church? Yeah, I think so. I I think that's an interesting one because I think there's definitely going to be some overlap there. The difference for scholars and historians is really wrestling with questions of historicity and thinking of things like, well, was this text actually, if it's not written, let's say till 70 CE, we'll say 35, 40 years after Jesus dies, how much is that text affected by the followers knowing that he is Jesus, the risen God, and how much does that color their description, right? Someone who is in a more theological setting might be more willing to take that text at face value and just work with that text. And that's that's a really blanket um, description. That's not to say all theologians would behave that way, Um, but they also might focus on other elements such as like Uh, salvation and how that works into this whole message more than a historian might want to just figure out like how do we even figure out which words we should attribute to Jesus and which words maybe are massaged by the author to make Jesus fit their community better and that that's a whole nother Um, podcast that we can get into where we talk about the four Gospels and how three of them are called the Synoptic Gospels because they look very similar, but then they have some sort of profound differences. And then you have John who's like, it's the same general story, but I have tons of miracles you've never heard of. Uh, The ordering is different. Jesus is very much up front of like, I am God. And in the other three, he's a little more secretive about this message until he gets closer to the end interesting all right uh, I had I want to talk to you about a, a couple of these specific um, biographies that we could mention uh, so for instance Jesus as a healer have you encountered this much that Jesus was a healer he did miracles is this is this part of your knowledge base of Jesus
1: absolutely that's one of the Sort of characteristics that demonstrates his power. I would say when people speak about Jesus as a uh, figure of um, empowerment, I think that's the proof. He performed these miracles, and therefore the power was sort of self evident.
0: Gotcha. Um, what have you thought about the miracles? As you know, you're a historian. Have you ever thought to yourself, like, did these miracles actually happen? Do you just accept them at face value? How do you process even this idea now that we live in an age with the scientific revolution and we think of the world differently than these people even would have? How do you process the fact that, that he did these all these miracles?
1: That's a great question, and I think that my answer now is different than it would have been 10 years ago. I think 10 years ago I would have seen things from a much more strictly – Um, let's say, scientific and historical perspective and questioned the veracity of the miracles. Now I think I can appreciate that they, I don't know if they happened or not. I don't know that that's provable, but miraculous events have been important throughout human history in uh, motivating people and guiding people in Um, revealing to people sort of previously unseen paths. So I'm less skeptical or less intent on disproving them and more interested in what is the psychology behind that? What does it mean that people believe that miracles have uh, and can happen, um, have happened and can happen? And so I would say that I'm more open to the possibility that I don't. We can't prove one way or the other, but people certainly believe that. And what does that tell us about people's psychologies, their their states of mind, their worldview? If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, very much. I think that mirrors pretty closely the trajectory that I've had in my life. Whereas in my 20s, I was very much in the the miracles didn't happen. They don't fit historically. Uh, But now, like, when I'm at a dinner party, as soon as someone finds out, like, I study early Christianity, the very first thing they ask me is, did the miracles happen? I gotta know. Did the miracles happen? I'm like, well, I don't have a time machine, so I can't actually answer that. But the answer I usually give is very similar to what you said, which is basically, in the ancient world, miracles happened all the time. I mean, the Romans look to the flight of birds to figure out if they should go to war at times. And, and just the miraculous was a part of daily life because they didn't have the scientific revolution. They, this is how they explained the world around them. So it's very hard for me to evaluate these types of events with this whole new way of processing and thinking about the world. So I always just say in the ancient world, miracles happened all the time and Jesus is one of these people who is associated with the miraculous. I don't know exactly what that means historically, but that's all I've got to work with.
1: Yeah, and I think there are other cultures where looking at similar events could be useful in comparison. I'm thinking of a book I read about the uh, Ming Dynasty, China, and it was talking about these dragon sightings that people had recorded in the uh, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. And there are, these are observers saying that they absolutely, definitely saw a dragon. It it coincided with some sort of climactic event, um, often some sort of weather-related uh, event, not always a catastrophe, but at times a catastrophe, and I'm less interested in questioning whether people actually saw dragons and more interested in the role that these dragon sighting events played in shaping people's uh, outlook and worldview. Um, and, I, and I would imagine that many anthropologists throughout the world have seen similar or observed similar moments where there is people believe that some sort of miracle is is proving or showing or telling them something
0: yeah i can agree with that um another really interesting uh portrait or biography that i've seen and this is not supported by many scholars you might like this one is that jesus was actually doing what the messiah was supposed to do which is come in overthrow the romans bring in the kingdom of God once more, elevate the Judeans to power. And Jesus tried to do this. And he was a social revolutionary and tried to to overthrow the Romans with force and failed. And then when he did, when he failed, his followers went back in and changed the story. But Casey, they left you clues. They left you little bits. Like there's a part where he says, you know, Uh, it's better to uh, carry a sword than have uh, a coat. So if you don't have a sword, you should go sell your clothes and get a sword. And so, you know, you look at that and you're like, wait, what? Why would Jesus say it's better to be naked with a sword than just be clothed? Um, There's another part where when Jesus is arrested, uh, one of his followers cuts off the 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 slave's ear of the high priest, and everyone's and no one is like, oh my goodness, they're just like, yeah, that happened, um, and so that seems to be indication that maybe they had weapons. And then when he's crucified on his cross, it says, King of the Jews, and he's crucified between two bandits, which could mean like social upheaval, revolutionary types. What do you think, Casey? Has it all been overwritten? And he was actually just a failed uh, revolutionary figure?
1: Well, it's interesting. That makes me wonder if he's always seen as the Messiah or if he becomes the Messiah. Is it a sort of hero's journey into uh, Messiahhood? Or is it that he is always, always seen as the Messiah and the story serves to illustrate uh, lessons for others. Mm. What's the scholarly take on that?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's also tough because, remember, he doesn't come into this whole Messiah hood until he's like 33. That's where the story picks up. So it's like, or, or I guess it's like he's 30 to 33, somewhere in that range. But you're like, wait, so what about those those first 30 years? And Luke is like, don't worry, I got you covered. And he has one story about when he's, when he's a kid and he goes into the temple and somebody recognizes his greatness. But the other uh, biographers, the other gospels don't even have that. It's just like he is uh, either born or not born, by the way. Only two of them have a birth story. And then he's, boom, he's an adult. And so it is a great question of like, how does this journey work? Does he just suddenly start preaching and becoming this great heroic figure and getting a following, which is what the story says. And then it's a very short journey and then he dies. And then after that, we don't know. We don't know. Is it a thing where it's really after his death where people reflect on it in his resurrection and they start saying, oh my goodness, this guy was the Messiah all along. Do they, um, you know, do they believe fully all along that he's the Messiah? We have some clues that maybe they didn't. When he's arrested, uh, someone comes up to Peter and they're like, "You're friends with Jesus, right?" And he's like, "No, I don't even know that guy." I'm like, wait, what? And so I think it's one of those things. Like, if he fully understands that he's the Messiah, would he deny that relationship? I don't know. These are all sort of mysteries that we don't have great answers to.
1: My, I'll say my image of him is that he was always the Messiah, and I think what becomes difficult when people try to parse the historical fact from maybe in their minds the religious fiction is it seems like the whole pr- point is that he was always the Messiah and the life story served to um, – demonstrate the path for others and reveal wisdom that had previously been absent so then trying to figure out at what point does he become truly the messiah was there a real normal person before that um to me that seems beside the point of the kind of mythos that that i at least see surrounding his story
0: yeah And then we also have some scholars who want to say something like the Messiah part is really overblown. That really what he is, is he's like a wandering Jewish peasant, cynic, cynic meaning uh, the the Greek philosophy, but just like someone who spouts off witty aphorisms and is kind of like a teacher person, much more than a Messiah um, eschatological end time figure. It's quite interesting that we have this really heated debate between two branches of scholars, one that wants to say, no, 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 the fact that he's an end time prophet, that sort of influences everything else. And the other side wanting to say, no, the fact that he's a teacher influences everything else. And maybe the end time stuff is like a small part of it. But it it's not the focus. Whereas some people will say, "What are you? What are you nuts?" Of course, it's the focus. It's the whole thing. It's that he's preaching the end times, and this is what you have to do to uh, you know be ready for the coming of God and bringing His kingdom once more.
1: So, how do scholars conduct that debate? I mean, what serves as proof when they're conducting some sort of back and forth? How do you support your vision of him as either? the serious messiah or the, I don't know, lucky posthumous messiah. (laughs) I
0: like that description. Uh, Yeah. That's, that's one of the big questions within Jesus scholarship is, is how do you evaluate and how do you elevate certain passages to figure out like, what are the core elements? And so There's a lot of different processes. One of the more common ones is just to kind of say like, well, does it appear in more sources? And you might say like, what are you talking about more sources? We only have, you know, these four gospels and if they're pretty similar, what's the difference? But we have all these other little things. So there's this document called Q, which most biblical scholars think is a source that matthew and luke used alongside mark when they were building their document so then you would have sources could be q you could have mark as a separate source you could have the unique material within matthew and luke you have the unique material in john you have another document called the gospel of thomas which really messes everything up this this document people date to 50 ce which would be the earliest of all the gospels or way later and say it's a Gnostic text um, from say like 120 to 150 and it has almost no relevance. So it's like, depending on what sources you are going to say are early and late, that's going to influence how you decide which passages are more authentic. Essentially, scholars can't even decide on which passages they should be looking at to decide which ones are more authentic.
1: So is there any sort of – it sounds like there's no consensus. It sounds like there is an ongoing discussion at times, debate about what even qualifies as legitimate sourcing.
0: Yes. Yeah. And that becomes very tricky to deal with. It's especially the case with Gospel of Thomas because the Gospel of Thomas – Is only a sayings document. There is no narrative material at all. It's just a list of, and Jesus said this, and Jesus said this, and Jesus said this. And so if you're going to say that that's the earliest source we have of all, then the narrative of him must not have been as important. And it's just sort of those witty sayings and teachings of his. Those are the most important. But if you say, no, the narrative material in Mark is the earliest, and that's the most important alongside the sayings in Q, then you have a very different uh, Jesus that you're working with.
1: And how much of that
0: overlaps
1: with what you might find if you are a practicing Christian, you're going to church? How much of this the textual traditions overlap between a sort of follower and a a scholar of um, Christianity.
0: Yeah, that's a harder question for me to answer because my data is very anecdotal on followers. But the followers that I've met who are who are like not deeply invested in understanding the textual element of it are unaware of most of this debate. Um, most of the followers I know. It's more of a, like, these are the passages that my leader talks about during our meetings. uh, And so these are the passages that I am most aware of. Uh, My wife is a good example of that. She was raised uh, in Catholicism, went to church every weekend, has a really good understanding of some elements of the material. um, But then a lot of the elements that I worked on in my historical work she had never even thought about before like she had never even thought about the idea of trying to figure out like are there different accounts in matthew mark luke and john how are they different how should we weight them those those were not elements that were raised for her specifically as being really important issues
1: so sounds if i'm getting this all correctly that no matter what Jesus we're talking about, we're talking about a sort of curated Jesus. There's always an element of selection defining the image presented. And a lot of discussions and debates center around which elements we've chosen to curate.
0: Yeah, I think that's quite accurate. And I think that curation actually happens before you've even looked at the text. And I think a lot of scholars would bristle at that, that they're, the biases that they have brought in with them so dramatically affect their conclusions that they're almost inseparable.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't quite thought about it that way. Although it, when you say it, it makes a lot of sense. But you, my image, at least, of of scholarship would be people carefully making their way through the text and really trying to understand what it says and then developing some sort of theory about uh, or some sort of thesis on what does this mean and why. And it's interesting to think that even coming to the text, you're bringing some sort of preconceptions that might shape and subtly curate what you're choosing.
0: Yeah. And, And your description, I think, is perfectly accurate. I think that's how scholars would describe their work. Um, That's how I would have described my work. But then there's also that recognition that it's really hard, no matter how hard we try to separate our biases, to completely be successful there. And I think some scholars would argue vehemently with me that, no, I have been able to put my biases aside. The Jesus I've come up with has nothing to do with my bias. It is completely separate. And that may be 100% true for that person. But I think... It's very, very challenging to set aside everything you know about the universe and your upbringing and somehow magically put it in a box and say, I will look at this text fresh as if no one has ever looked at it before. You're even influenced by the people who previously looked at this text because you have all these other ideas of other scholars bouncing around in your mind that you're either agreeing with or disagreeing with. And it's just... It's really hard to ever say, like, this is a fresh look at this text.
1: To your knowledge, is there any scholar or scholarly traditions that has tried to put these different Jesuses in dialogue with one another? I mean, is there any book or um, series of articles where you're getting these different images placed side by side? Is is anyone doing that sort of comparative work or do you really become embedded in a tradition and then work within the confines of that tradition?
0: No, I think scholars are regularly in dialogue. It's, it's, it's one of the most important parts, I think, about being a scholar is to understand that you aren't siloed off into your own area, that, but that you are constantly dialoguing with others, trying to figure it out. There's lots of books where, um, for instance, the that debate I was talking to you about just now with the um, Dale Allison and the eschatological end time Jesus. There's a set of articles where he and John Dominic Crossan, who believes in the more uh, wandering peasant cynic, they are actually arguing with each other. And It's very fascinating to read, um, you know. And the <laughs> the problem is there's no conclusion, right? It's basically like. Do you agree with this way of weighing the evidence? Or do you agree with this way of weighing the evidence? What well, was really fascinating, though, is for a while there was this thing called the Jesus Seminar. And so these people got together, a whole bunch of scholars, and they would like all vote. All right, do we think this is an authentic passage of Jesus? Put in the red bead if you think it is. Uh, if you think maybe it is, put in the pink bead. And they would all put their beads into the middle, uh, and then they could release you know, publications of like the Jesus seminar has concluded that, yes, this is an authentic passage of Jesus, or this one's kind of disputed. We're still working on it.
1: Were those decisions,
0: if that's the right word, were they
1: accepted by other scholars in the community? Were they contested? How did that shape the field?
0: That was a little bit before my time when that stuff was going on. Um, I didn't find it influential in any way when I was studying, but I think it was more influential for like a mass audience, right? If you can say like, we are a group of 50 prestigious scholars. We do disagree a lot on this, but we've taken a vote and this is what we come up with. I think that was sort of compelling for a while for a mass audience to say kind of like, I don't have the time or skills to be able to make this decision myself. So I'm going to rely on this brand name, the Jesus Seminar. They said Jesus said it. I'm going to go with that. Jesus said it.
1: I think of all the Jesuses we've talked about so far, Jesus by Democracy is my
0: favorite. (laughs) There you go. Jesus by Democracy. All right, Casey. I think that's going to have to wrap it up for today. Thanks so much for joining me on this journey into who was Jesus. As we leave, I want to ask you this question. Do you feel like now you know who Jesus definitely was?
1: Oh, I feel like I have only more questions.
0: <laughs> yeah, I taught uh, a whole class at UCLA 10 weeks just on the historical Jesus, and at the end, I had a student come up to me and say, "Ah, uh, Kevin?" Um, I feel like I know less about Jesus than when I started this class. And I was like, I have been successful.
1: I, I would echo that, although I see that as a success as well. I'm, I'm if anything, more interested in the different schools of thought about Jesus, uh, especially the kind of textual Jesus versus the maybe historically reconstructed Jesus. So I would be curious about what those different schools are and how they've come to their their different perspectives.
0: All right. Well, it sounds like we have a lot still to cover. So stay tuned next time for the next episode of Unscriptured.